Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In today's episode, Limerick woman Vicky Phelan has made herself a household name, becoming Irish women's voice for justice on the cervical check scandal with her system-changing activism. In her memoir, Overcoming, Vicky shares her remarkable personal story, from a life-threatening accident in early adulthood through to motherhood, a battle with depression, her devastating later discovery that her cancer had returned in shocking circumstances. I talked to her about all of that, about why, when it could have been easier for her to say nothing, she decided to speak out, and about her health now and her hopes for the future. But first, Orna Mulcahy, Managing Editor at the Irish Times, is here for a chat. Orna, thank you very much for coming down to talk to me in the middle of your busy work day in the Irish Times. Um, we're going to start by talking about period trackers, which a lot of people are using now more than ever. And it's a way for people who want to have babies to see when they're ovulating, just people to know about their periods in a bit more of a specific fact-driven way. But if you are using one of these things, there's an article in The Guardian this week and it says, not content with knowing where you've been, who you've been talking to, which of your friends you want to date and who you're likely to vote for, it now looks like Facebook also knows when you've been having sex if you've been using a period tracker app, this is. So Privacy International released research that says um, apps used by millions of women to track their menstrual cycles and the information's going on to third parties and then they can know these things and they can use that information I don't know what would they use the information for but lots of other things what what do you think about that have you ever used one of these apps do you know people who do Okay, well, I have not used one of these apps, but I've been reading a little bit about it. I didn't quite realise uh, how many people were using them. But I think the story that you're referring to originally came from uh, BuzzFeed and they uh, found out that information that that was being uh, harvested by apps like um, the two that they mentioned were Maya and MIE Femme, Basically, these are period and pregnancy tracking apps and that information from those was being passed on to Facebook, but that also um, information from them could be sought by insurers and by um, employers. And that's obviously an enormous concern for uh, women that if you're working on one of these apps and you're putting in all kinds of information, you're just browsing through it, scrolling you know, saying, how are you feeling today? Are you a bit down? Um, is that information that ultimately you would like your employer to know? It's not, and you shouldn't be doing it, is what I would be saying to young women. Yeah. Switch to some other kind of app, go and buy a lamp online or something. But the reality is, if you put in information about how you're feeling, whether you want to have a baby, 
that kind of thing, it's likely that it will eventually be used. But it by reminds insurers. me, kind of, do you remember the face distortion app where the one that everyone was, people didn't seem to care that the. No, because you know, it was so much fun to see how yeah. you looked like as an old person. Although, frankly, you know, why, why on <laughs> earth anybody would want to do that? But I think very, very quickly people realised, oh my God, no, I'm giving far too much away yeah. in this. And they stopped and. You so know, definitely this is so this, this research sort of really gives people pause. Like when you're doing this, it might be you might be getting something out of it, but also just bear in mind what is happening with that information. I think so, because um, you're also talking about women who might be in a vulnerable um, enough state. Uh, for instance, if you're not feeling the best, if you say that that sort of thing, you know, my skin, I've had a breakout or whatever. Suddenly you're getting up an ad that's saying poor skin. Here's what you do about yeah. it. And really, do you need any more of that kind of, you know, negative thoughts coming yeah, at yeah. you from, 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 from the internet, from the phone? There is enough of that out there yeah. without being, uh, you know, bombarded with ads for things that because you're too fat, because you're too sluggish, because you're too this, that or the other. Yeah. Don't do it again, I would say. I mean... Um, there are other web, there are other apps out there. There's a US one called Avia, I think, where actually employers can pay employees to use it as a kind of a fun thing to do, um, just to check up on your on your health when you're out on leave, say on your uh, maternity leave. But again, the reality is that they're using the information there to track or to you know anticipate how you might behave in the workplace yeah, when you come it's back very big or whatever. Brother, isn't it? It's very big brother. And I suppose what's happened is that Fitbit has given this incredible boost to the personal, you know, sort of data or physical data uh, market. I mean, so many millions of us are now using, you know, uh, that as a sort of a, as we see it as a simple way to track, you know, whether we're getting enough um, exercise. But actually, when you take it into this other realm of your reproductive health, um, you can see clearly that, you know, an insurance company would love to, you know, sort of gather in all of that data about what age people are when they're having their kids, when they start thinking about their kids, all of that. And you can see why um, employers, you know, similarly would want to know what kind of a mental headspace you're in about that. Because, you know, the reality is as soon as they see the pink line or whatever coming up, they know that they're going to lose an employer for X number of months. Call me cynical. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I just think that that kind of information is giving, is just too much to give. Well, let's talk about something less cynical. What's been on your cultural radar? What are you reading, podcasting, watching these oh days? God. What's going on? Uh, apart from Netflix, uh, binging on that. But uh, I've just come back from my holidays and that's a great time to have a bit of a holiday read. And uh, I picked up Jenny um, Eclair's latest novel, uh, Inheritance, it's called. And it's just a really fantastic read because especially if you like the idea of families and houses, which I happen to do <laughs> very much. And it's about... Or is the editor <laughs> of Home and Design, I should say. Well, I, it was just made for me because it was uh, <laughs> at the centre of it was kind of a character who was getting ready for an enormous party for her husband's 50th. And she was doing everything to the house and she started out in a great mood. And by the end of it, she was actually ready to murder somebody. Now, she didn't, as it <laughs> happened, but I can't recommend it enough. Brilliant. It's just beautifully written. You'll get great laughs out of it and you'll recognise all of the home, you know, sort of decor trends in there as well. Yeah. The vast kitchens and the pocket doors and the lovely flooring or whatever. Excellent. Really nice read. And I suppose then, as a bit of a counterbalance, Rachel Cusk 
uh, who I absolutely love. I know she's got a, a book of essays out that I haven't managed to get, but I found myself reading her the first of her trilogy again on holiday. It's called Outline. Um, she's written three books in a kind of a series, and this is really... It's a conversation with 10 people, really. That's how the book is, you know, sort of broken down. And it starts on a plane to Greece. And really, she's just an astonishing writer, I think. And the insights that you'll get in there about the way that we all, you know, sort of relate to uh, other people. It's very, very, very interesting. It's a very little book, which means it's oh, great. It's good. We love little uh, books. Very, very good. But like, it's just packed with insight and you just find yourself having to stop and going, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe she knows that. Wow. Uh, I, I would thoroughly recommend it. And it's Culture Night on Friday. It so is. There's so much going on all over the country for people to do. Oh, it's just, what a, what a, what a marvellous thing that we have here and how people have really and how it's you know, spread as well on board yeah. people just really love it and it's a chance to get out and also a chance to get out after hours as well so that even if you're absolutely rammed all day long you can go out onto the street and yeah. go with your friends bring the kids along go to see I mean God you can go to the Bressel Bakery and, and have a tour behind the scenes there you can you know, go to beautiful libraries, obviously, like, you know, Marshall, Mar- Marsh's Library, which, you know, we all say we'd love to go to. This really is your chance now to see uh, Marsh's at 5.30 p.m. You can go to Christchurch and hear music. You can see street art. You can um, go to that wonderful new Museum of Literature. Well, which I was You've there last there. night. I, I have to say, Twitter. I felt very lucky to be invited. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely stunning. I have to say what Simon O'Connor and his team have done there. He's the director of the museum. And the beautiful garden out the back, we should mention, and it was such a fine evening last mm, night that everyone spilled out. And there's an, actually a little secret gate where when you're in the Ivy Gardens, you can actually go in okay. through this garden and down to the Commons, which is Dominic Kemp and Peach's yeah. new restaurant, which is there too. But it's um, I mean, immediately when you walk into the museum, which is the Museum of Literature Ireland, which is called Molly for short, um, after Molly Bloom. But it's different because there's immediately faces of women everywhere, women writers and people that you're not used to. You know, when you think of that tea towel that we all know about with all the famous Irish writers and not a woman there. But you're looking at Kate O'Brien and Nuala Whelan and Maeve Binchy and uh, Sarah Maria Griffin and all these people, you know, young writers and and older, more established writers are all represented in a really in-your-face way. So I think it's really exciting and it's really stylish. Of course, Simon uh, was with the Little Museum across the park before that. He has great experience, but he's also quite a, he's an artistic person. Yeah, he used to do all the layouts for the Dubliner magazine. So he has that graphic design, visual element as well. And it's really evident in the whole place. There's loads of things for children in there too, which is fantastic. So I think I'll be taking mine uh, on Friday again for them to have their first look. Exactly. But it's just a a beautiful new addition to our town, you know, and uh, the Nocturns are the people who funded all, all the money behind it. It was okay. incredibly generous of them, but it's a partnership between UCD, which that, the, the building uh, Newman House yeah, used to be right. the original UCD. Course, that was in, did it appear in Joyce? I don't know. Yeah, well, it, Joyce graduated from there and there's a tree in the garden, which is the tree that Joyce got his graduation photo taken in front of. So it's kind of amazing. There's, there's the first rare, very rare first edition of Ulysses there and all these amazing things. So, um, yeah, it's a partnership between UCD and the National Library and uh, with lots of very great beneficial sort of 
benefactors there who've, who've put in up loads of money just because they want the city and the world to see all this these amazing artefacts. So I would really urge anyone to go I'm in and have a look. Go. I'm definitely going. And I have to evening. mention as it's well, it's open until ten p.m. Yeah, like and at the it's, and it's free um, on Friday as well, so that's worth going. There'll probably be a queue, but maybe get there early. I think or even late if you. Well, that's true. Either end because late, there will yeah. be a really big interest in people going. And I have to mention at the end of this very lovely party where um, a glass a parting glass was handed around to everyone at the end of of rare Middleton whiskey it was such a nice little touch oh, and then Denise Chala who's this Zambian Irish rapper uh, singer and poet from um, Zambia and she's based in Limerick she's an absolutely wonderful artist and she played with her friends This, I mean it was like this very genteel party and then this thing happened and everyone was just transfixed and loved it so I think that really um, set the tone for what the museum is trying to do it's trying to reach out to all these different um, sort of communities that we have in Ireland now and not just the usual sort of staid you know pale Go and in, stale kind ticket, of thing yeah and it's exciting and the things that he has coming up like a series on cult Irish authors you know just pushing out the barriers and, and exposing us to things that we don't necessarily get to see all the time. So I, I think Culture Night, go and explore and there's loads and loads of brilliant things. I'm going to do that. Excellent. Thank you very much, Orna. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Many of us will remember that sunny day, April 25th, 2018, when a relatively unknown mother from Limerick stood in front of the four courts in Dublin and lifted the lid on what has become one of the greatest political and medical scandals of our time. In speaking out, Vicky Phelan gave voice to those who had been suffering in silence as it emerged that more than 220 women with cervical cancer had initially been given the all clear based on smear tests carried out by the Cervical Check Screening Programme. Since then, Vicky has become a tireless campaigner for women who've suffered at the hands of the healthcare system, all the while fighting for her own life and raising her two children, Amelia and Dara. But long before she was diagnosed with cancer, Vicky had fought more horrific battles than most people do in a lifetime, which she chronicles in her brilliant and important memoir, Overcoming. Vicky came into the Irish Times earlier this week to speak to me about the book, about why she wrote it and about her plans for the future, which will see her occupying a spot in the Shannon if she has anything to do with it. Vicky Phelan, delighted to have you in uh, studio with us for the Women's Podcast. We've spoken to you before on the phone, but it's lovely to meet you in person and lovely to talk about your book, Overcoming, which is a fantastic read. And you've had a busy few days. Yes, it's been very busy, actually, kind of jam-packed. Um, uh, my publisher is keeping me on my toes now, but it's been lovely. I mean, you know, the good thing about this is people say to me, oh, are you tired? And I'm there, well, yeah, but I didn't think I'd be here, Roisin. That's the reality. So, I mean, you know, I have these kind of markers and, and for me it was to get to September to when the book was published and to still be here to go around and do all the, the nice stuff as I see it, you know, to be able to talk about it. So for me, it's just great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Listen, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, tell us about your childhood, where you grew up and, and being the eldest in your family, which I think reading the book definitely fed into kind of your strength of character and what allowed you to be such a leader in this whole area. Yeah, uh, like a lot of people in this country, we you know big families. We're all down to two and three kids now. But, you know, I'm the oldest of five and I have three brothers. And then my sister didn't come along until I was 11. So, you know, having three brothers, um, they were who were always fighting, by the way, um, <laughs> You know, really toughens you up, to be honest. And I was a real tomboy out playing with all the lads for, you know, years until my sister came along. 
Um, but like that, my mother was working, um, would have done shift work and I was having to get dinners ready at, you know, 10, 11 years of age and, and mind the lads and do my homework. So, you know, uh, that definitely gives you, um, I don't know, definitely a strength of character that uh, you have to be independent, you know, I think as a, at a young age when, when you're kind of left your own devices. Uh, and my mother trusted me. I think that was the thing too. You know, my parents knew I was sensible and were, you know, that the kids were left in capable hands. So Because you were a very studious kind of person. As oh well. my God. But yeah. were you always looking outside yeah. Ireland too and wanting to get away and that kind of oh thing? Oh yes, absolutely. I remember my best friend and I wouldn't have been the same as me and she used to come up trying to get me to come out, you know, uh, especially when it came to leaving cert. I mean, I had timetables taped up on my wall for you know the whole two years of so the we leaving cert cycle oh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and my friend was the same she was there god she used to come up and, and my mother would even be pleading with me go on would you go out with Maria for a while no I have to study whatever x y and z you know so yeah I always loved studying I mean education for me I don't know it just opened my eyes and I loved reading I mean one of the things my mother you know, it's very strong and like, I, you know, I'd always go to my mother as my kind of critic. She reads so voraciously. Mam would read two or three books a week, you know, and taught us to read from a very young age. But wouldn't have had like the opportunities Not you had. Not at all. I mean, Mam still gets books from the library. Like there's a little mobile library that goes around and, you know, Tom, the librarian, knows exactly the kind of books Mam likes. You know, so, it, it, you know, reading is a great thing because, you know, no matter what you have, whether you have money or you haven't, you know, you can still, people can get books, you can borrow them and it just takes you away. It's an escapism, isn't it? That's what it is. And for my mother, it was certainly an escape from five kids, you know, killing each other at home. So, um, yeah, no, I lo always loved studying, always loved And studying. did you want to get away then? Did you yes. have that sort of outward looking? Um, yeah, I, I was blessed to have a brilliant teacher. I mention her a lot in the book um, and she's actually going to launch uh, my book at the, in Waterford next week. She was instrumental really for me when I got to secondary school because I was the first um, person in my family to go to college, which sounds like, you know, people look at you now and you go, really? But this was back in the 90s, you know? and I was the first one to go to university uh, most of them might have done you know kind of trade courses yeah. or you know add on courses level six but this was like full on you know four year degree program and actually moving away you know not living at home so um, she was you know she recognised that I was extremely bright um, and I just needed the encouragement because my parents hadn't gone to college. They didn't know. There was, you know, now I know what to call it. You know, looking back, you know, we didn't have that cultural capital, as they call it, you know, because my parents were working Even class. filling out CAO forms totally. or whatever. Yeah. They wouldn't have known where to start, you know. So I got that encouragement from her and kind of realised then, oh God, maybe I could do this, you know. And I mean, she went so far as to even pick the university for me to go to. She said, UL would be really good for you because, you know, she said I was very bright, but could be a bit lazy. So this will keep you on your toes. It was continuous assessment. So... And it worked perfectly for me. I just loved it. You know? And tell me about going to France, because the thing in reading the book, right, mm. is we know such a lot about you. But reading the book, we learn an awful lot more. You've had, before anything ever happened with cervical cancer to you, you've had more sort of misfortune and tragedy and stuff going on in your life than a lot of people have, you know. Yeah. So tell us about a few of those things, because you went to France and that was quite a, a seismic time in your life mm. in, in a few different ways, really. Yeah, so I had been to France for two summers prior to um, when I went to France um, on work placement with the university. Again, it was my French teacher um, saw that, you know, I was good at French, but I'd improve it more if I went and 
spoke the language. So I had worked as an au pair for two summers. So by the time I started university, my French was really good anyway. So I got a really good placement in France um, at a hotel and uh, off I went anyway, delighted with myself, going off for six or seven months. And I just loved everything about the language. I loved, you know, learning about different cultures and their traditions and, you know, the different things, you know, like going for the, you know, the, the cafe at four o'clock. And I just loved all of that. And I, I was like a sponge, all the vocab, you know, taking it all in. And I've, I, I'm very blessed. I have a good memory still. Thank God to this day. But uh, anyway, we made some friends when we were working there. It was a hotel where they took in a lot of, um, um, God, I can't think of the word in English, interns, I suppose. So there were a lot of us there from Ireland. There was um, four, four students from UL. There were three uh, hotel management students from England. And they were kind of over us because they were older and they were in their final year. And then there was a lot of um, interns from French uh, hotel management and catering. Uh, colleges and that's where I met Christophe so Christophe started uh, about two or three weeks after me and uh, Katie my friend Katie always says well you know she's responsible for introducing us which she was um, so we met anyway and uh, you know it's, it's, it's funny I, I never had that experience before where you meet somebody and you kind of know straight away there's that, that spark you know and we started going out, obviously, and, um, you know, it was a lovely time. And, and actually, you know, in the book, you can see kind of, you know, the happiness and the fact that I kept diaries at that time. You know, it was it's great to have them to look back on because it was really just, you know, one of the best times of my life. But anyway, um, it was coming to an end um, because one of the girls was going back to Lille. It was Katie, actually. It was her last night and we decided we'd go further afield. We went to this nightclub. Normally we go to this little bar and we decided this night, well, sure, look, we'll go all out now, go to the next town. And off we went. There was two carloads of us, 10 of us in these tiny little Renault 5s. I don't know, do you remember what they, they're tiny cars, like yeah. matchboxes. So off we went anyway in the two cars and about four o'clock that morning, we were travelling back. Some of us, I would have been in work for six o'clock. Jesus, when I think about it, now you wouldn't do it. But <laughs> you had the energy. <laughs> not at all. So we were coming back uh, and we were on country roads, you know, it was kind of, you know, not a built up area at all. So, you know, the fact that this fireman literally, you know, swerved to avoid the car that crashed into us. If he had not been a fireman, I don't think he'd have turned around because he wouldn't have known what to do. Do you know what I mean? But he knew that he was hoping, to be honest, when he was looking in his rear view mirror, that this car was going to swerve and go into the ditch. But what he saw then was the fireball. He saw that there had been a crash and turned around and came back and uh, realised, you know, this was a very serious accident. We were lucky that he was a fireman. He knew what to do. Um, he had a knife on him to cut us out of the cars because if he didn't, you know, we, none of us would have made it, to be honest, if he hadn't been there. Um, he got third degree burns trying to pull us out of the cars and he got a medal for bravery for what he did because, you know, he saved three of us from death, basically, you know, but out of the three six, out of six. So the guy that crashed into us died on impact and there were five in our car. So Christoph was driving and he died straight away immediately. There was no headrest in the car, so literally snapped his neck, gone. I was in the front seat, passenger. Um, uh, I survived, but the seatbelt did all the damage. So I broke a lot of bones, you know, um, ribs, collarbone, my nose, cheek. Uh, my pelvis was shattered, broke my femur bone, which is the one in your thigh, my ankle in three places, internal bleeding. I mean, it was a catalogue, you know, of, of injuries. Katie um, was thrown out of the car. She wasn't wearing a seatbelt um, and she's paralysed. Now, she's still alive, but she's very... Uh, it's not even that she's paraplegic. She has some use of her arms um, and she's had a lot of surgeries over the years that just to give her, like, it's called a pincer grip, just to be able to pick things up with her hands, which has given her a bit more freedom. But, you know, 
it's still very hard to see her like that, you know. And then Lisa, another Irish girl that was in the car with us, um, she died, uh, but not straight away. She was brain damaged, you know, with the injury that she had. Um, and her parents had to turn off the life support machine after 10 days. So it was horrendous, you know, and, horrendous. And Vicky, I mean, it's absolutely awful. Like reading that, you really, it's mm. very well written. Naomi, who you wrote the book yeah. with, is, is a brilliant writer and it's it's very good. But you were in hospital for, for quite a long time then? Yeah, so it happened on the 10th of July and I was in hospital in France for five weeks until I was stable enough to be transported home. But even at that point, when, when they left me go home, I had to be stretchered on a plane, you know, so they'd take out nine seats out of the plane and put me on a stretcher because I couldn't sit up because my pelvis was shattered. So I was on the flat on my back for about nine weeks before I was allowed to even sit, you know, and then I was in hospital in Waterford Regional Hospital then until I got out, I think, the first week in October. So in terms of your attitude to life at that point, mm. I mean, you'd had an escape, but you'd lost people you loved, particularly yeah. like your first love and, and yeah. all that goes with that. How did it change how you moved on? Because you did meet Jim then eventually. Yeah. But did it take a long time? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, that happened in 1994. I didn't meet Jim till 1996. And even at that point when I met Jim, you know, I kind of did keep him at an arm's length for a long time because I just wasn't ready. To, I just wasn't ready emotionally, I think, to be honest. I didn't know it at the time, but that's really what was happening. Um, I was very bitter and angry, to be honest, Roisin, for a long time. I blamed, I wouldn't have had a huge, strong faith, I suppose, but I certainly started blaming God um, and kind of wondering how this could happen to people who did nothing to deserve this. Do you know what I mean? And I think it was very difficult for me to accept for a long time because I didn't get to attend funerals. So you still expect these people to walk through the door, you know, so... Oh, it took an awful lot of time for me to just get over it. And I, I changed. I mean, my best friends would tell you that, that I changed from then on, you know, from being this kind of outgoing, happy-go-lucky person. I became very introverted. I didn't go out. I stopped drinking for about two years because alcohol just made me very weepy, to be honest. I've had too many drinks and I got a lot of flashbacks. So I just stopped drinking for a long time, you know. Um, you did get together with Jim though mm. and then you had uh, your first child and again I just feel like you've had a catalogue <laughs> of things without, we'll get to you know later yeah. on but you know there were, you knew very early on that there was something wrong with yeah. Amelia um, tell us about that yeah so um, I had a f- like my pregnancy was absolutely perfect you know flew through it to be honest and I was quite always sporty so at that stage I hadn't started the running until after I had Amelia but I would have been swimming a lot so I was swimming throughout the whole pregnancy kept active and I was going in for this scan and you know this again is another example you know it's funny when you go back over it you know of the two tier system we have here I had gone private for my pregnancy because of the fact I'd had such terrible injuries from my accident and my pelvis was so badly shattered they didn't think I'd actually be able to carry a baby to full term. So the midwives wouldn't have touched off me, so I had to go private. So we scraped the money together to do that at the time. And I had a scan at 28 weeks, which I wouldn't have had if I had been public. And it was at that scan that my gynecologist picked up that there was something wrong with the baby. Now, he didn't know what it was, but he knew it wasn't good. I remember him saying to me, because I went in on my own for the scan. I mean, I do a lot of this stuff myself. You know, I never need somebody really holding my hand. And I hadn't any reason to worry about it. So I um, remember being at that scan wondering what the hell um, is going on here. You know, nothing. I had felt fine. I was tired. But sure, you know, this is my first pregnancy. I didn't think that that was anything unusual. So anyway, um, it was later on that day. I had to, he literally told me he had to admit me to hospital um, until he found out what was wrong. So I went to the hospital. Jim came straight in and um, we, we were kind of sitting there in shock, not knowing what to think, really, you know. So I remember my gynecologist coming back to um, 
the hospital when he was finished um, all his patients and said to me, uh, unfortunately, Vicky, you know, what I saw on the scan this morning, you know, it's not good. I don't know what it is yet. We're going to have to get a lot of bloods done, but you're going to have to stay in until we figure out what it is. But basically, it's one of three things. It's either um, Edward syndrome. And I went, oh, Jesus, I had heard of that one. Um, a congenital heart defect or toxoplasmosis. I went, oh, my God, you know, this is how, how can it have gone from this normal pregnancy to this in such a short space of time, you know. So the hard part of that then, until we found out what it was, and it took about three weeks, you know, to get all these bloods done, it's the not known. Actually, not known is so difficult because you're imagining the worst, you know. And the toxoplasmosis affects the eyesight. Mm-hmm. And it's you're not known. Um, it could be brain damage as well. Yes. And you don't know how it's going to affect. Um, and when she was born, mm. then you were dealing with all of that. But also you suffered from postnatal depression, yeah. too. So yeah. that was, you know, compounding. Yeah, I think, you know, when I look back on it now, I mean, how I didn't see it coming, I don't know, because, I mean, the last six weeks of that pregnancy were horrendous. I was in hospital for most of it. And then when they realised that I had toxoplasmosis and I had that amniocentesis done that proved that the baby had it as well. Um, So I was put on this horrendous medication. Um, I couldn't even, most days I wasn't even getting out of the bed, to be honest, because if I moved my head, I was vomiting. I couldn't keep anything down. Um, I lost two stone in the space of six weeks. I was skin and bone now, to be honest, by the time I had the baby. So, you know, I was exhausted. I was sick and really nobody could tell us until she was born how she was going to look. And, you know, it's even you're at the point you're going, is she going to have 10 fingers, 10 toes? Her And her head when she came out was slightly enlarged. So I was worried about hydrocephalus and... It was, I remember when she was born, you know, obviously every woman cries when they see their baby, but I was crying just from pure relief, to be honest, that she came out, you know, it was like, Jesus, she's still alive, yeah. you know, so it was, it was just awful, you know. And, and did you go about sort of looking into, because some people wouldn't know what toxoplasmosis is, if you can give us a brief description of what yeah. it is. Oh, I, you know, I did the same with that as I did yeah, with everything in my I mean. life. You're, you're a SWAT, basically. Yeah, yeah. Now, and it's funny, you know, the way people deal with things differently. Jim didn't want to know anything about right. it. He just said, why do you need to read up about it? And I said, because that's the way I am. I need to understand this disease. So I started reading everything. I was reading medical papers, journals, the whole lot, and realised that this was, you know, like a lifelong thing, that she could still lose her eyesight. It's not curable. Um, So it's a parasite. So it's a little, it's like malaria. It's a very similar condition. So it's this little parasite that lives at the back of the eye and there's no cure for it. So, I mean, And how did you get it? So how you pick it up then, you know, when they tell you when you're pregnant, um, to make sure you're eating meat that's cooked, that's not rare or, you know, blood coming out of it and to have, if you're eating salads or vegetables that they're all washed, that's why. Okay. okay. Because what happens is it's usually cats or sheep. Actually, sheep farmers know quite a lot about toxoplasmosis, but it's generally passed through cats, so cat feces, basically. And myself and my mother were out garden, as you do. It was a beautiful summer. I remember when I was pregnant and sure we weren't wearing gloves. And they reckoned that, you know, that's I obviously touched the soil and there was cat feces from a feral cat in the area we were living in the country and that's how I got it. Simple as that. And so as Amelia grew up, I mean, you were dealing with all of that mm. and, you know, do, taking a very rigorous approach to it and finding out everything you could. Um, and then something happened to her when she was around eight. She was seven. Seven. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know. I mean, this is the stuff of absolute parental <sighs> oh, nightmares. It is. It, uh, and you then know, we're adding this to all the stuff you've already been through. And your like this is the through. worst thing that ever happened. It's uh, funny you say you know, that in the book because oh, we all know what happened to you afterwards. Yeah. But you actually say this is the worst mm. thing. So tell us that. So I was working away from home. So we moved back to Limerick um, in 2012 because Jim had lost his job, you know. So like a lot of families in this country were hit by the the economic recession. He was a builder. There was no work. It was drying up. And, you know, 
we had a huge mortgage which we couldn't no longer afford to pay so we moved back to Limerick because we had kept a house up there which we had rented out and it was a really small mortgage um, so I said you know it makes more sense now just to offload the big mortgage move back to Limerick and me being me working in education I said sure you may as well go back to college do a degree and we'll get a you know BTA allowance back to education allowance and it'll be a steady income coming in I have a good job let's just do that so that's what we did um, and I said I'd look out for a job coming up in UL but like there were no jobs coming up so I was still commuting up and down from Limerick to Waterford to work mm-hmm. Now I had a very understanding boss who you know um, made it very easy for me I took print leave on one day but it was an awful commute you know I'd go down on a Monday stay Monday night Tuesday night do two really long days and come home on Wednesday so obviously because I was gone for three days Amelia was always you know looking forward to seeing me when I came back on a Wednesday evening so she stayed up so she'd stay up on a Wednesday evening I'd come back we'd have a cup of tea and a chat and you know I'd look over her homework and you know as you do and I came back home that evening and she was after having her bath and she decided this night, thank God, that she'd dry her hair herself because um, normally I'd dry her hair and she'd really long hair um, and I'd have had it bone dry. Uh, and if if that had been the case, you know, her burns would have been far worse, they said, you know, because with girls and long hair, it literally would go up the scalp into the face. Like we were very lucky, to be honest. She has one scar under her chin, but you wouldn't really notice it, you know. So I was inside in the kitchen making the cup of tea. She was in the sitting room prancing around to one of her Barbie videos, which I can still not listen to this day. Uh, and she had this long maxi dress on her. And this was the end of January, but you know, girls like yeah, to get dressed up. That's it, yeah. exactly. So um, a spark from the fire cut the back of her dress and it was the right side of her body. And that's where like her right eye is practically. She's practically blind in the right eye. She's less than 10% vision. She didn't see it. Like you or I would might see the flames, because of the you know, exactly. Yeah. So by the time she realised that this was on fire, she panicked and did what any child would do. She ran. And as she ran, combustion, the thing just took off. And as I, I was literally had the two mugs and next thing I heard the scream and the scream was, you know, that, you know, you hear these descriptions of blood curdling screams. That's the only way I can describe it. Never forget it. It won't leave me. She was screaming, coming into the kitchen and all I could see was like something from an action movie, this fireball coming over her head. It was, oh, I'll never forget it. And I screamed at Jim to come down. He could hear her screaming, he could hear me screaming and thank God the two of us were there. And he came down and thankfully I'm a first aider in work and it all kicked in. Because if I hadn't done what I'd done, like she would be dealing with the disability because her arm would have fused to her body because she had a burn under her arm and I kept her arms out while we were hosing her down with the water just because I saw that she was burned under the arm, not for any other reason. You know, I remember the plastic surgeon saying to me, how did you have the sense to do that? And That's just me being thorough. I just saw that there was a burn there and I kept the water over it. But Jim initially was going to put her in cold water, which is what most people say, oh my God, that's exactly what I'd have done. That would have been the wrong thing to do. I just remember, you know, you find this. I just said, no, 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 not not cold water. You have to run run lukewarm and run the water over her body to stop the burns going deeper. So we still had, thankfully, there was still a bit of warm water left in the tank, you know, yourself with the immersion. So we were, we were lucky. We had it, you know. So we kept the warm water on her, kept her arms out. And while he was doing that, I was on the phone to the ambulance and I was ma- insisting, you know, again, because I could see how bad it was. I said, I'm a first aider. You know, this is not some small little burn. She's se- severely burned. We need the ambulance ASAP. And in fairness to him, you know, they came out within um, 10 minutes, really, you know. I mean, like I say, so much has gone on to you with you before we ever yeah. saw you yeah. on the steps of the four courts. Because mm. that's where, in a way, to, to bring it up to that. Because, 
you would think you'd had so much going on <laughs> in your life. Did you kind of have a sense that nothing else can happen to oh, you? Oh, absolutely. Did you feel like that? Because I think oh, I, I would. Like this, that has to be it. Yeah. But then you got cancer. Yeah. And dealing with all of that. And that was just a year later. So Amelia's accident happened at the end of January 2013 and I was diagnosed the following June uh, 2014, you know. Yeah. You just think really, you know. Can but as we know, uh, that 2014 mm. diagnosis could have come much earlier yes. because as we now know, your results had been in. And what I find amazing about you, so many amazing things, Vicky, but the fact that you, when you suddenly started to cotton on to this fact, you, there was a missing page on yeah. your file you were straight in there taking pictures. You you seem to have this innate sense that something was seriously wrong where a lot of people might have just gone, you know, oh, I, not enough noticed. Yeah. What is it about you? What, what? Tell me about that time when you kind of, you almost got on this rolling thing. There's something that I need to unpick here. Yeah. And pull the thread I, and I think kept it, on pulling. I think it's the fact that I, I work in education um, and I, I, I always loved research. Like I think my ideal job would be research, to be honest, because, that you know, and I just love kind of, you know, Asking the, I've always been good at asking questions, and I think that's what it boils down to. To be honest, Roisin, I've always asked questions. I've always been the difficult mother, the difficult you know patient, uh, and you know doctors never particularly liked me because I was always asking questions. But you know what? I didn't care. You know, I think you, and and I think that's what we need to learn in this country. We need to ask more questions and not worry about what people think about you know us asking questions. So I suppose it goes back to that. But I think that day in particular. I'd had the conversation, you see, with the gynecologist. So in January 2018 was when I went and I insisted on that biopsy. You know, they weren't going to give me a biopsy. And it was at that point that I decided I was taking control back. And I think that's kind of what started it, really. It was that that decision I made to say, no, hang on a minute here now. I blindly followed all your treatment plans first time round with the four centimetre tumour. It didn't work. I was in horrendous pain, so sick, you know, and it's ruined my sex life. It's ruined everything in my life, really. And you think I'm going to go through it all again. Uh, but now with the 10 centimetre tumour, you know, I, I just thought, no, I'm not doing that. I want a biopsy to make sure that 100% this is the same cancer. That I thought, well, you know, there's a possibility this could be lymphoma because it was in my lymph nodes. Um, now, that didn't turn out to be the case, but I just thought, no, this is time now I took back control. So because I insisted on the biopsy, we were in there in a treatment room waiting to go down to have the procedure, myself and my mother. And... Um, I sat, was sitting there thinking, you know, and I, I, I really didn't want to go there, to be honest. But I said to myself, I'm going to have to start doing something about this audit. So I'd had the conversation with my gynecologist the previous September, and he'd been very vague about the audit, you know, just saying that, you know, cervical check could carry this out, and it was for educational purposes. Then they decided that they'd have to communicate the results to women because there were discordant results. Um, and he said, in my case, um, you know, the, review, the, the smear I had in 2011, when they retested it, they realised that, you know, it wasn't um, clear that there were actually was abnormal, there were abnormalities. But he didn't kind of say, you know, with 100% certainty, you definitely had cancer in 2011. He just said, you know, there's a chance you may have had, could have had treatment earlier. He, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I said, well, what, what kind of treatment are you talking about? And he said, well, you could have had a hysterectomy. And I said, and would that have been it? And he said, yes. And I said, like, how would it have come back then? And he said, no, it would have been contained. In, 20, in 2014, and it was too late for you too to late. have Too late. It had spread. It had spread. To so that was the spark where you mm. knew that you were going to have to get yeah. involved. And so it led then to very soon afterwards, you having taken a case, you mm-hmm. went to a solicitor, you got two brilliant people involved, which was yeah. really great. You, you got great people and you're in the forecourts. And the other thing I find amazing about you is that when all the solicitors are running through the rooms, the HSE solicitors and everyone else, and they come to you saying, we're going to give you loads of money, but you have to sign a non-disclosure 
disclosure. Mm-hmm. You're, you were just adamant that you weren't going to do that. Yeah, I asked Keen because at that stage when we were in that mediation, Keen, yeah, Keen O'Carroll is my solicitor, and when we were in that mediation hearing, we knew at that point that there were fourteen other women. So you know, anything that I was mentioned in legally had to be given to my team, and it was literally only about three or four days prior to this mediation hearing that we found out that there were other women. And I said to him, you know, in this mediation hearing, well, if I sign this non-disclosure agreement, you know, is there any way that we can get them to sign something to say that they will tell all of these fourteen other women? And he said, it doesn't work like that, Vicky. He said, so I said, if I sign this non-disclosure agreement, they're not going to find out, are they? And he said, no, they're not. And I said, well, that's it then, you know, there's no way I'm signing this. No way. And did did anybody think you were mad? Did anybody try to dissuade you? No, not really, because to be honest, I, I you know, we'd had the conversation actually myself and Keen and Siobhan at the very beginning when I took them on uh, and when we sat down to kind of discuss what, basically they asked me, what did I want to get out of it? And I said, well... I want to get answers to, you know, why why I'm in this position, you know, when I could have been cured in 2011. And I want to get an apology, which came eventually. Um, and I want an admission of liability, which I didn't get. And that still kind of grates my nerves. But I did say to him um, at the time, and at that stage we only knew, you know, it, there was me. And he said, well, you know, this could go down the road of them looking for you to sign, a, a, you know, a non-disclosure agreement where you wouldn't be able to talk about it. And even at that stage, I said, I don't think I could do that because I'm the type of person I talk about everything. Yeah. You know, and that was the first thing I said to him. So am I not going to be able to talk to my family about this? And he said, no. I said, well, there's no way I can do that. So I that's where we saw you at all because the expert evidence came mm-hmm. and they knew they they, yeah. were, they were gone. They ran for the hills and they allowed you to have your, mm. be able to talk and get your settlement yeah. as well. And that's where we sort of first see Vicky yeah. feeling. Um, in, and it, it just took off in that way. But what you did, like you say, the, the domino effect of what you did um, meant that the other women, the 200 plus women, mm. you then set up a support group as well for, for people in the same situation. You know, Simon Harris was on the phone to you. Mm. The T-shirt was on the phone to you. And it was, I mean, I remember at the time, um, and there's a, there's a copy of the Irish Times up behind your head. Listeners can't see, but that actually has a cervical check headline on it. The Scally report came then as well. And it, it, I'm interested to see what you think about how the threads between, say, if you go back in terms of the state's treatment of women, if we mm-hmm. look at mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, abortion, this whole scandal over the cervical check. This is sort of a, and in Scally's report where he talks, like one line in it from it is, nuns don't get... Uh, cervical cancer, which is also in your book, this, this sort of disrespect and mm-hmm. trivialising of women's health. Do you see them all joined up together? I do, actually, and I wouldn't have before. It's funny, you know, until last year, I suppose I'm the type of woman, um, as everybody knows, I don't take shit, you know, and I don't take, um, you know, a lot really. So I'd never have been, I wouldn't have tolerated somebody speaking to me like that. And I've been very lucky that any of my doctors that I deal with, you know, either with my own illness or with my daughters, have always been quite professional. Now, there are times that they will, you know, kind of challenge me, but I never had that, you know, experience that some of the women had. But as I got deeper into this last year, I could see, you know, because women were contacting me. I mean, even outside of the cervical check thing, women were contacting me about the way, you know, they were being treated, even just having their smears and women going in with symptoms and not being taken seriously. So, you know, you have to kind of start, uh, and I did have to start kind of go, well, there is a pattern here. And then I started reading up about all the other scandals that had happened to women between the Bridget McCall one and the Hep C. Uh, and then I spoke um, with uh, Roisin Malloy, you know, from the Port Leash Baby Death Scandal. She's been a great help to us as a patient advocate. And you can start to see these patterns. And I just 
thought, well, you know, something has to change here. And particularly with Gabriel Skelly's report, one of the things that I was quite shocked at, actually, apart from some of the comments that, uh, you know, were, were said to women, was the fact that we actually did have a women's policy in uh, in this country and it was, as he said, it just disappeared. It was subsumed in the Department of Health. It was set up in 1997 um, and then in 2008, again, probably at the time of the recession, they decided, oh, sure, they don't need that anymore, you know, and it was subsumed into the Department of Health and the HSE and it has disappeared and has not been put back on the agenda since. So, you know, as soon as we started making waves last year and things started happening, I kind of said to myself, well, you know, now is an opportunity to start getting women uh, women first, women first policies back um, on the agenda. And that's what we're pushing for, to be honest. And in terms of cervical um, services, like in other countries as well, not just Ireland, there's mm. there's all sorts of um, scandals and things that go on, isn't there, with results. Do you think, um, it, because of what you've done and because of the, all the work of so many other women as well, and we think of Emma Vikvahuna, mm. who you write about very movingly as well, that, that things are better now? Or what are you wanting to have changed uh, no I think things are getting there and I think women are starting to stand up for themselves a bit more and that's what I keep I suppose the one message that I keep harping on about and I keep saying to people is ask questions don't you know if you, and know your body because sometimes they don't take you seriously and a lot of the consultants unfortunately that women are dealing with when it comes to their wombs or their you know gynecological uh, problems are men who know nothing about what it's like to have uh, a womb and to be a woman and to have these symptoms and they're just going by the book. So I would always say to women like, you know, you know your body uh, and I knew my body at the time and I knew at the time that the bleeding I had was not normal for me. You know what I mean? And you have to kind of, you know, take control and take charge and ask the questions and insist. And if you're not happy with your doctor, move, move to another one. So I think small things like that, I think will ha- start to make some little bit of change. But um, yesterday, actually, at the launch in Clontarf, um, one of the women who was asking questions mentioned about um, maybe we, we should start looking at um, uh, a minister for women in this country. And that really started me thinking. And I off went last night then Googling um, what countries have ministers for women. And actually, they have one in New Zealand. They have one in Australia. They have one in the UK. So I'm going to start pushing for that. Now, I think that's something that we need to start looking at. It's not enough to have quotas and, you know, uh, female politicians. We actually need to have somebody who's in charge of women and women's policies in this country. So, you know, I think we need to, um, you know, women make up 50% of the country. Like, why are we so tolerant of this. So, you know, I do think there needs to be a sea change really across the board. And we've seen it with the repeal the 8th last year. I mean, that was fantastic, you know, for this country. But we need to build on that and actually use that momentum and start um, demanding more and better services. One of the things I'm really glad that you mentioned a number of times in the book is your sex life. And you Mm. mentioned it there earlier. I mean, it's this idea that, you know, we're not supposed to talk about that or that that's not a really important part of life. But you mentioned it along the way at various stages. And I know for your husband, who's quite a... He's not like you, let's say. The whole thing must be quite difficult, but it's very generous of him to allow you to tell your full story and mention things like that. But in terms of that kind of thing, the sex life thing, Mm -hmm. that was something that you keep coming back to and saying at various stages of the illness, how it affected you. Mm -hmm. I I did because nobody was talking about it. I remember, you know, when I was diagnosed first, you know, uh, as I said, I was given this bag of dilators and told to go home and literally use them, you know, for 15 minutes every day to keep my vagina open for internal exams and if I wanted to have a sex life. But there was no talk about, well, you know, how does that make you feel? And, you know, you might need a little bit of support around it. You were literally handed this bag and sent on your way. And I had nobody to talk to because there was nobody else that I knew who was going through this. There was one older woman um, who I spoke with and, you know, we would have spoken. 
But that was it. You know, they, they don't tend to, there was no support for women with cervical cancer to talk about these issues. So as, once we set up the support group, I could see the difference that it was making by me talking about these things. Like the first time I made the decision to start talking about my sex life was at the launch of the support group uh, uh, where we had about 100, 150 of the group came and Stephen Teep said to me, now Vicky, you know, you need to talk first because they want to hear from you. And I said to him, well, what am I going to talk about? And he said, well, your cancer story, uh, you know, they don't know, they know about your court case, but nobody knows about your cancer story and how it affected you. And I said, well, I'm going to have to talk about my sex life, so our lack of it. And, you know, like you have to have a sense of humour with this at the same time. But I thought if I started talking about it, I knew it would open up the floor for other women. And it did. And as soon as I started talking about it, we started seeing patterns that, you know, uh, one of the things that we've actually managed to to, to get the HSE to, to do is to replace these um, bloody dilators with silicone ones. I mean, why should we have to use hard plastic dilators when there are perfectly good silicone ones? Because they're bloody cheaper. So now they're, um, they have replaced those. They've also put in place support for women so that there are there is somebody to talk to if you do have problems trying to go back that's to have huge. an intimate relationship. And that's a huge thing. But why are not we not entitled to that? You know, these are things that, again, nobody, you know, a lot of these policies are male driven. They're not thinking from a woman's point of view. Well, it's like that book, Invisible Women by Caroline mm. Criada Perez, which I'm sure you have read and are very interested in. Finally, one thing I'd love to talk to you about a little bit is your um, unwillingness, like you mentioned it earlier, to sort of say this is the treatment that you're being given by mm. the medical people. Um, you went out there now reading the book, you've done everything from <laughs> healing, mm-hmm. even though you're not a religious person. You've done the vitamin C infusions, the oxygen therapy mm-hmm. and the Pembro. We had a big fight to get that specific um, medication that wasn't available in Ireland. What are Where are you now with all of that and how are you? I'm great. I mean, I'm still on my Pembro. I, I had my 25th infusion on Wednesday, uh, you know, so I mean, that's fantastic. Do you still have a reaction to it? Cause the no, first time? Okay, absolutely none. So it took my body, I'd say maybe three months to kind of settle into it. It's kind of like, you know, they liken it to like a transplant reaction. And some people don't have that reaction. Some people actually get on fine. But I think in the grand scheme of things, I'm probably doing a lot better than some other people who have some awful side effects. Like the side effects from it, if you have them, are quite severe you can get anything from you know really bad pneumonia pneumonitis to colitis which is really bad diarrhea and you have to come off it you know because it can damage your bowel and all of that I never had any of that I was very lucky so I mean I just I'm just blessed to be honest I mean I wake up every day and I cannot believe that I'm as well as I am you know when you consider what I was told and how bad my cancer Six to is 12 months yeah given and like where my tumours are my tumours are all around my vital organs you know in around my abdomen you know touching off everything you know so if it comes back and it spreads like I'm screwed do you know what I mean that's the reality but you know at the moment I've got stable disease and you know as long as it stays stable I'm, I've got more time and I've got a great quality of life I mean I do the vitamin C infusions whenever I can but sure I'm on the road the whole time up and down to Dublin so it all depends on when I have the time to do these things but I really wanted to write about the the different treatments that I've tried in the book because people always ask me well what are you doing because they see me and they see that I'm so well and of course people want to you know they, they want a lifeline you know and I think it's important for people to try other things that you know it's but not it's always medical. It's interesting because the cancer sort of community mm. they're often very um, oh, yeah. sceptical and very annoyed by people talking about things like diet <laughs> and positive mental attitude as if and obviously medical um, care is, is so important but those do you believe those things can also add to help you absolutely you. Uh, yeah and I think you should not be made to feel guilty about trying other things um, I mean I do everything in conjunction with my medical treatment I would never recommend uh, people to come off their medical treatment but I don't think 
there's any harm in trying some of these things. Uh, and most of them, you know, in fairness, the um, oxygen therapy is something that uh, is actually used in conjunction with radiation in particular. Um, and that's why I wrote about that, because a lot of women won't know that, that it's actually very good for actually improving the tissue in your vagina. And a lot of women won't know that. So that's why I put that in there. Vitamin C infusions, again, they work very well um, with chemotherapy and people feel less nauseous. And that's why they would have them. And again, it doesn't impact on the treatment. So as long as you know people talk to their oncologists and if they're oncologists, again, I would say this, if they're not willing to kind of engage or, you know, uh, don't agree with any of this, you know, you can always try and move to another oncologist if you want to keep going at this, you know. Um, Vicky, so what next for you? Like it's it's one day at a time, obviously. I mean, mm. as much as any of us don't know how long we have left, but you've particularly kind of, yes. you know, urgency about your yeah. life. So what is it that you want to do? You've got the book now. Your children, uh, Dara and Amelia, can read this. They can, they'll know every single bit, which is a wonderful thing yeah. to have. Um, and also you're helping loads of other people who are in various situations. But what do you want to do? What um, is it? What's your mission now? I suppose if uh, if I had a choice, um, if 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 I was given more time. So at the moment, I suppose the way I'm living my life is I'm happy enough to do this campaigning and work um, to try and improve services for for women, really, you know, and for terminally ill cancer patients. I'm doing a lot of work in that area as well. I'm trying. I'm actually funding a position at the moment um, that's going to be run up here in Dublin um, with uh, Professor Cathy Kelly in the matter. Um, and I'm hoping that that will be rolled out across the country if we get good results. Um, but long term, I mean, if I if I if I thought I was going to be here for you know another long time, I'd love to go to to. I'd actually love to work in the Senate. That would be my that would be my wish. You know, I'd like to become a senator. I think that would be where I'd maybe make a big impact and bring in some bills that would actually make a difference across the country. So, fingers crossed. That's at the back of my mind constantly. You know. <laughs> So just living your life and doing what you can in yeah. the meantime. And, and enjoying it. And I, th- I just think that's so important, um, you know, to people. I mean, I, I was no different than anybody else. You're always living kind of going, oh, I'll be happy when, you know, and you're always looking for the next promotion or, you know, when I get the new car or when we do up the sitting room. I mean, really, that stuff doesn't matter. You know, especially when you get ill like this, you just have to enjoy the moments, you know. So I'm doing everything I can and taking advantage of all opportunities. I'll be at Fela at the weekend and I can't wait. You know, you have to enjoy life and the small moments, getting out for a walk on the beach, sitting down with my kids, watching a movie, having a bit of popcorn. You know, you can't beat it, honestly. Well, Vicky, the book is called Overcoming. It's an absolutely brilliant read. And um, we're so glad to have you here. You're you're an Irish hero, I think, and someone who we have so much to be grateful for. So thank you very much. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. And I wish you as much time as you possibly could have um, because we need you in the world. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Roshan. It was a pleasure. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guests, Vicky Phelan and Orna Mulcahy. And a reminder that Vicky's really excellent memoir, Overcoming, written with Naomi Linnan, is out now. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.